Ashley Willens is an assistant professor at Harvard Business School and a leading scholar in the time and happiness research field. She earned her PhD in social psychology from the University of British Columbia, and she's twice named a rising star of behavioral science by the Behavioral Science and Policy Association. On this episode of The Burleson Box, we'll talk with Ashley about her latest book, Time Smart, How to Reclaim Your Time and Live a Happier Life. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. Are you trying to increase your treatment plan close rates while also increasing revenue? How can you do both for your dental practice without burning out an already burdened staff? The answer? Remote dental monitoring. You need a trusted HIPAA-compliant app that helps you and your staff work smarter, not harder. This needs to be an easy-to-use, easy-onboard app that your patients will find fun to use and will increase their engagement and success with aligners. You need the InHand Dental app. The InHand Dental app allows you to engage with your patients in real time, send individual and batched messages, and solve problems to increase compliance without using up chair time. The result? Happy patients, happy staff, and happy practices with more revenue and the ability to do more starts. With prices starting as low as $149 a month, it's perfect for a growing aligner business. Check us out and learn more at InHandDental.com. Plus, mention Burleson for a 20% off discount on your subscription when you contact us. That's InHandDental.com. Ashley Willens is part of the Global Happiness Council and Workplace and Wellbeing Initiative at Harvard University, and she advises on workplace and well-being strategies for numerous nonprofits and for-profit partners. She has written about her research, which has appeared in numerous outlets, including the New York Times, the Washington Post, the LA Times, CNN, BBC, The Atlantic, The Economist, and The Wall Street Journal. In today's episode, we'll talk with Ashley how you can help value your time over money. It'll make you happier, healthier, and more productive. I'm excited for you to join us on today's episode of The Burleson Box. Today, we're joined by Ashley Willens, who's the author of Time Smart, How to Reclaim Your Time and Live a Happier Life. Ashley, thank you so much for joining us on the program. Yeah, thanks for having me today. Your book and the research in it show people who value their time over money are happier, They're healthier and more productive. Yet you say in the book, most of us still focus on money because we underestimate the value of our time. After all these years and all the evidence and the research, why are we still getting this wrong? It is a really easy thing to know that valuing time over money is better for happiness, and it's much harder to live that truth. There's a lot of factors that are pushing us to focus on money and productivity at the expense of leisure. Our workplaces idolize ideal workers who are constantly responsive to emails, and so it can be difficult for us to really prioritize time. Also, we always think we're going to have more time in the future than we do today, so there's a lot of interesting psychological hurdles that get in the way from living a time affluent and happier life. I know you teach at the Harvard Business School and you work with leaders from all over the world. I see, I mean, I hate to stereotype, but I see a more balanced work-life kind of value of time with my clients in Europe and throughout the world. What's up with like this American, like work, work, work all the time? Have you, have you seen that? 
Yeah, we have data on this exactly. So we see that countries that have a higher proportion of respondents that value leisure over work are happier, irregardless of the GDP of those countries. And you can kind of guess exactly along the lines of what you're saying, who those countries are. Those tend to be (laughs) Scandinavian countries. It's definitely not the US. We actually have some data that Protestant work ethic, so this idea, this notion that leisure is lazy, can even vary within the U.S. So on the coast, Protestant work ethic is higher, and people don't derive as much satisfaction from leisure in those places when we believe that leisure is synonymous with being lazy or unproductive. So definitely where we live and our culture plays a role in whether we feel like we can prioritize leisure over work or not. Um, and it does have to do with whether people feel like they can really that they're going to be supported in that choice. So part of the reason that places like Scandinavian countries and Europe have people who can say willingly that they value leisure and time over work and making money is because their government supports them in that decision. They get more paid time off. Uh, they have different kinds of social security benefits, health benefits, childcare benefits that the U.S. is lacking. So that's also part of the reason that it's so difficult for us to focus on time as opposed to money, our, our social structures are really pushing us to focus on productivity and earning more money, especially when we're in a bit of an economic downturn during the COVID pandemic. That leads us from a psychological perspective to gravitate more towards earning and making more money, even if it comes at the expense of our time. That's why it's so important for all of us to recognize these social structural factors that might push us to focus more on work and productivity, and then try to be more proactive and deliberate in the context of our everyday lives to put time first. I want to dig into that. I'm so guilty of this. You know, I grew up, my grandfather was a coal miner and worked, you know, seven days a week once he started his own business. And it's like this badge of honor, like work, work, work. I think I read, I'm sure it was in your book, like an overwhelming number of Americans do not take the paid vacation they've already received. Is that true? Yeah. So 75% of working Americans in one of our studies did not take all the paid and unpaid vacation that they were entitled to. <laughs> wow. And you're totally right. Uh, especially in the US, we wear our busyness like a badge of honor. This is known in the psychological literature as busyness as a high status symbol. And you can guess, again, going back to a reoccurring theme in this conversation, that In the U.S., busyness confers high status. In Italy, leisure confers high status. If you see someone with amazing vacations, you're like, that person's doing something right in life if you're in Italy. (laughs) But in the U.S., we're like, wow, if they never have a second to spare, they must be really important. This even goes so far as creating this idleness aversion effect, which is another time trap I talk about in the book. People would rather blast themselves with mild electric shocks and be left alone with only their thoughts. That was done with college students. One of my colleagues ran that study, which I found pretty hilarious. But it's also true of working parents who are some of the busiest among us. They sometimes don't take a day off that they could take because they don't know what they would do with that time. So they just forego an opportunity to take a day off out of this fear that they might not do anything productive with that day otherwise. It's unreal. That's why I love your book. It's not just a opinion. It's scientifically based on the literature, but also it's a toolkit. So you include in the book these tools we can use to help reclaim our time. And one of those strategies is to identify these time traps. And so I really love this section of the book. Can you talk more about time traps, kind of maybe how listeners can identify them? And then I love this because I the other day I was like, man, I'm like up to my ankles in time confetti. You've coined this great phrase, this phenomenon you call time confetti. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I'll start there. So one of the major traps that makes us feel time poor, like we're overwhelmed by the demands of work and life, 
is the fact that technology disrupts our free time. It breaks it into small, distractible units of time that easily go missing. So this is the idea of time confetti, where before alerts, before we were constantly connected to our colleagues, friends, and family all time of the day and night, we used to have one hour of uninterrupted leisure after dinner each day. And now that leisure gets broken up by our alerts, our text messages, our work emails. And not only does that shrink the amount of leisure that we have available to do something meaningful with that time, it also pulls us out of the present and reminds us of all the other things we could or should be doing. So one of the major time traps that so many of us fall into is allowing our technology to run our lives. So being constantly available. I think one of the best things we can all do is just to start notice when our technology is stealing our attention, stealing our leisure away, and trying to be more proactive to manage our use of technology, to turn off our alerts so we can be more present in the moment and actually enjoy the limited amount of free time that we have available to us. Was there anything in researching the book or in your own research that you've been surprised by maybe that you've done in your own life, particularly as it relates to technology? I know I, I fight this all the time. There's, I mean, we're in front of a screen like all day, you know, with email and text and voice and Twitter. And I mean, it's like nonstop. Is there anything in the research where you said, okay, I'm going to try that. And maybe it worked either surprisingly well or maybe not. Yeah. So I would say one of the strategies that we've tested among executives and in many organizations worldwide is something that's pretty simple, but if you can actually hold yourself accountable to doing it, it's pretty effective at reducing these feelings of time confetti and increasing productivity, reducing burnout. And this is the idea, we probably all aspire to this, of putting proactive blocks of time in our calendar, a couple hours each and every day to work on the most important, but not necessarily the most urgent thing. So you turn off your email, you turn off your Slack, you turn off all distractions and you just sit down first thing in the day and try to work on your most important task. And this is really important because one of the key time traps is this idea of the mere urgency effect. So we prioritize urgent stuff over important things, especially when we're feeling overwhelmed. This is why your inbox goes to zero when you have a major client deadline, because it every time you check an email say yes to a meeting, that gives you a boost of confidence in the moment. You feel good about yourself for a second, but it's actually coming at the long-term cost of your time, affluence, and happiness because now you're not spending that time working on the thing you're supposed to be doing. We're even more likely to do that when we're feeling overwhelmed and busy. So by prioritization and blocking a couple of hours each day to work on your most important stuff and letting all the urgent distractions go, this can go a long way. It's a simple strategy. It helps when you have your workplaces on board. So in our experiments, we always make sure the managers on board knows when that block is so that they don't email their colleagues during that time. A junior employee might instantaneously respond to their manager, even if they're in a proactive block of time because they're worried about what their manager might think of them. So it's really important to try to do this at the team level so that everyone feels like they can really take those couple of hours to themselves when they need it. That's so important, right? I was speaking with another Harvard Business Review contributor, Martin Reeves, on imagination. And I think he quoted Bill Gates as saying, it's during those times when you feel overwhelmed and too like busy that you need to like stop and stare out the window and take a moment. And, you know, I love that concept. Do you have a feeling of like, you know, maybe how much time that works well for either your research participants or in, in your own life? Yeah, I think it's really important that you have more than an hour. Yep. And it takes a while to task switch. So you'll spend the first 10 minutes procrastinating and then you'll spend the last 10 minutes thinking about the next 
meeting on your calendar. Um, Unfortunately, when we do have meetings back to back, this also disrupts our ability to get productive work done. We focus on the next thing we have to do so we can't be present in the moment. So an hour isn't enough when you net out the 20 minutes that you're going to spend doing nothing or avoiding the task you're trying to do and then thinking about the next task you have to do. That's only 40 minutes. That can be pretty difficult to get in the groove on anything substantive. So you want to think about having at least more than an hour, preferably two. I, I love that you said that because we see this with members and clients where it's like, you've literally got like 10, 10 minute blocks occasionally to like go get a coffee. You know, it's not enough yeah, time. Yeah, we've, really we've been seeing this in our data too. We've been working on a large scale project with a top three management consulting firm and we are tracking all of how they're spending, like how teams are spending their time using Microsoft Analytics backend analytics data. And then, of course, asking them how they're spending their time. And yes, they're as stressed as their calendars look. Um, But exactly, they don't have any time during the day to get any work done. So it's no wonder they're working until 2 a.m. every day because their days are literally 10-minute blocks in between 50 meetings in a row. So they have no time to get any of the things done that they need to get done. And they don't really start working until they've eaten dinner with their partner and it's 8 p.m. So it's something that's super critical, not just for individual happiness, but also professional productivity. And from the top down, right, we had uh, Lee Cockrell, who's a retired uh, president or vice president at Disney World, had like, you know, 70 some odd thousand employees. And he said, Dustin, I I think on an average day, I really have about 40 minutes of solid work I get done. The rest is just running to meetings and focusing on the next thing in front of me, next crisis to go put out. He said, you know, when you're building $200 $200 million projects. It's it's just nonstop. But that, I mean, you would assume CEOs would have better control of their time, right? Yeah. And this is so important. So um, our former Dean uh, Nitin Noria had a paper with one of his colleagues exactly on this point, that even CEOs who presumably should have autonomy and control over how they're spending their time and have a lot of gatekeepers reported spending 20 to 30% of their time working on something that was not business critical. That's huge. (laughs) They should not be spending that much time on things that don't matter. And this is also something I talk about in the book. If you're really trying to go after time affluence and happiness, or at least minimizing the suck, minimizing the amount of time you spend in negative activities every day, you have to look at your calendar. Give yourself uh, time to have a hard look at how you're spending each day in the morning, in the afternoon, in the evening, are there activities you really should be delegating that you should be outsourcing? They're not important. You don't like them. You're not adding value. Someone else could do it better. That's by doing a time audit, we can start to identify those places, both in our personal lives and in our professional lives, that we really shouldn't be the owner of that task. We don't like it. It's not bringing us joy, meaning, fulfillment. We're not as good at it as other people. And that's when we need to get rid of it. And I think not enough of us do this on a regular basis, really audit our time use behaviors and ask ourselves, do we really need to be at that meeting? Or can one of my junior employees who might see it as an opportunity be able to handle it instead? You're so right. Often the things we hate to do, someone else like loves, they love it. And we actually don't think about this enough. So most people, especially junior employees, especially women, there's a great paper on this. Uh, We think about delegating as something that's negative, that we're going to burden another person with our dislike task because we are thinking about delegating things that aren't value add to us. And we underestimate the extent to which it's going to be a value add for someone else who's going to see it as an opportunity, a growth experience. They want more client time. They want more meetings, especially when you're junior and starting out. Those are exciting opportunities. And we underestimate 
we fail to completely take the other person's perspective. So this is a really important exercise, I think, for all of us to undertake. And worth that one piece of advice and strategy is worth the entire read of the book. And I, I love, so for listeners now saying, okay, I recognize there's time traps. I'm going to get better at identifying them and making better decisions about my time. But I love this concept of the book. You provide research, by the way, on how to find it, but also fund it. Can you talk about what is funding time? Funding time is pretty straightforward. So you want to be thinking about, this is in labor economics, you want to be thinking about maximizing your personal U-index, so maximizing the amount of time you spend in positive activities that are meaningful, productive, pleasant, minimizing the amount of time that you spend in negative, meaningless, unproductive activities. One way to do this in our personal lives is by funding time, giving up money to have more time. You would think that people who make more income are more likely to outsource dislike tasks to others, get grocery delivery services and house cleaning, even in a sample of 800 of some of the world's wealthiest in Europe, mind you, so there's a bit of a caveat here, we found that only about 50% said they spent money to outsource or dislike tasks to others. So we definitely have more opportunity, all of us have more opportunity to spend money to save ourselves time. The benefits of buying time can pay off even at small dollar amounts, like $40 is enough to get that happiness benefits of these time-saving purchases. And we've been doing some interesting research on autonomous products, Roombas, uh, machines that will clean our house on our behalf. And we see that people who own autonomous products do in fact get a happiness bump from that, but only if they think about these products as time-saving. It's really important that if you do have autonomous products, you are making time-saving purchases, like having someone do a deep clean of your house or clean your eaves or do yard maintenance, that you actually think about that as a deliberate act of saving time because then you're more likely to spend the free time that they're saving you in a deliberate and happy and meaningful way. So it's really important that if you already are making these time-saving purchases in the context of your everyday life, that you put it together in your mind, hey, this is saving me time. Is there something I could do with that time that's more enjoyable than vegging on the couch or working on some frustrating work emails? That will make these purchases go further in terms of happiness. Now, a quick word from our sponsor. When's the last time you evaluated your credit card processing statement? Our partners at Stacks are offering a free savings analysis for our listeners, where they will actually take your merchant statement with your current processor and show you where you're overpaying. Stacks has saved orthodontics practices over 40% per month on payment processing costs. So don't wait. Get your free savings analysis today and see how much you're overpaying for your credit card processing. Go to StaxPayments.com forward slash Burleson dash seminars to schedule your savings analysis today. Plus, as a special offer for our podcast listeners, if you sign up today, you can get your first two months of payments processing costs waived from Stax. Once again, that's StaxPayments.com forward slash Burleson dash seminars. Stop overpaying. Start saving. And now, back to the program. I really enjoyed that part of the book. And I think that's, a again, for our American-based clients, it's really hard for them to break through. It's like a badge of honor. Like, no, I mean, like, I cut my own grass. I clean my own house. I mean, it's like, but how many opportunities to use that time elsewhere are there? And, you know, I just, I, I, I really enjoyed that part of the book. Because often I think, am I the only one thinking this way? You know, to get a, a client to hire an executive assistant is 
like pulling teeth. And then when they do it, they would they're like, they'll never go back to not having someone. I know. I hear this over and over again, too. I do a lot of focus groups with high net worth clients or people who run small businesses. And they're like, I can't believe I waited five years to hire an EA. What was I thinking? Those are hours and hours of my life I can't get back. And they're always now advocating, I need it. You should get an EA. Everyone needs an EA. And it's so true. But we often do feel bad. Again, it goes back to Protestant work ethic. It goes back to this idea that we undervalue our time. We're worried about whether the time benefit will be worth the financial cost and we anchor more in the finances than we do the time savings. It's not until we've experienced a time saving that we realize it's so great and we can overcome our guilt. So I really encourage listeners to try to overcome that feeling of having to do everything and be the perfect everything, parent, partner, professional. And if you can uh, hire to help you get ahead, absolutely go for it because it does really make a big difference in the lives of my clients and different people that I've talked to over the years. It drives straight to the heart because the majority of listeners, although there are some entrepreneurs and financial advisors, even an attorney or two that have snuck into the group, most are doctors. So we've got dentists and surgeons and these perfectionists, which I guess, you know, in the operatory, when doing surgery, perfection is a great ideal. But the rest of the time, <laughs> not, not so great. So you drive straight to the heart of this. On page 125, you share some really interesting work policies because I know the listeners want details. And you said, based on a Harvard Business School and U University of Texas at Austin study, that more than 78% of employees in that study reported their organizations were, quote, systematically wasting their time. And then you, you straight to the heart of the matter, you show in that research that doctors, so the listeners of this program, are wasting almost nine hours a week doing billing and record keeping. And that number, by the way, has doubled in the last 10 years. Can you talk about how these, you know, systemic changes in the workplace might come about or maybe what the research is showing on where we truly are wasting our employees' time. Yeah, I mean, definitely being kept idle in between appointments, but billing is something that affects all of our professions. We're hiring fewer people um, to, in administrative roles and putting more of the burden on the professionals themselves to manage paperwork demands, budgeting, the financial elements that and hiring elements that may, they might not have been responsible for otherwise. And this is something that as us as individual employees need to take into consideration, right, that we are actually getting more demands. Our demands continue to go up. We're not necessarily being compensated for those uh, demands either. But if there's any way to either lobby at an organizational level or at a personal level for staff time to help offset those costs, that's really critical. And again, this is across all professions. Doctors are, are one profession, but white collar, blue collar, all of us are being made to do more administrative tasks and have more paperwork burdens than in the past. And so it is really important to, to notice and recognize and not blame yourself. This is where organizations could go a long way in streamlining processes. So I know of some groups that have actually tried to do a time audit at the organizational level. Cass Sunstein, professor of law at Harvard, talks a lot about this, about trying to remove friction, sludge, and various administrative processes. He says, I think he's calculated, I wish I knew the statistic uh, precisely off the top of my head, but I think it's something like 100 to $200 billion each year are lost in the amount of economic productivity that 
is wasted on paperwork that's unnecessary. Wow. And and so it's it's crucially important from an organizational perspective in terms of efficiency to look at your systems and processes think about whether they're wasting your employees' time. The answer is they probably are. And then think about whether there's anything you can do about it to reduce some of the high administrative burdens. I used to work in government, and this was something that we'd be so frustrated by. And I worked in a behavioral science unit. So we were tasked with trying to make processes simpler for citizens and also simpler for public servants. And it can take a little bit of effort to f- simplify forms, to simplify processes, but it will save so much time in the long run. So just like in our own personal lives, hiring someone to do something for you does involve a little bit of an upfront cost, but the payoff accrual in terms of time across years is huge, and especially in an organizational context. So it really is worth championing. Uh, being a champion of some of these processes that save time in the long run, like simplifying paperwork. It's so critical. And it's so eye-opening. I did quick math, but my math is right. At 8.7 hours a week, doctors doing paperwork. If you take two weeks off, most of, most of our clients in the U.S. take two. Our European clients take six to eight, by the way. But that's like four, that's over 400 and so, 430 hours. That's like 10 work weeks <laughs> of doing paperwork. And that's a doctor. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's unbelievable. So it's really interesting, though. So, um, just one thing on people who bill by the hour or bill by um, bill by procedure. I'm married to a physician, so one thing that we have to overcome is this idea of of seeing our leisure as a cost. So, one thing when we are there's a lot of research suggesting that billing practices actually lead employees to focus more on financial and less on time. So they are more likely to sacrifice leisure. They focus more on the opportunity cost of leisure. They're able to enjoy leisure time less because they're thinking about whether they could have billed during that time. So I think it's a really important and interesting organizational characteristic. This isn't just physicians. This is also lawyers, accountants, consultants, really runs uh, the gamut. But people who are who bill by the hour or bill by uh, specific work products are more attuned to the financial value of their time. And this can, if you let it, have negative implications for time and money trade-offs if you're trying to maximize happiness. It might make you even more reticent, for example, to engage in some of the strategies we've been talking about. So I think it's also important to recognize that our organizational structures can also fundamentally shift the way we as individuals think about our time and the way that we allocate it. And so it's really important to think about the value of our leisure and then take our time off the clock when we're trying to enjoy time off, especially if we're in a profession that bills by the hour. Absolutely. And I, you're, you're reading my mind in chapter five that, I mean, I just shake my head and go, man, humans, we just like, we game the system so quickly to our detriment. And this is really common in my world. People will come into an office and they'll look at ways to boost productivity. And so they'll start putting financial incentives in place, but those really carry tremendous costs. Can you share a little bit, maybe double click, go a little deeper with how we can help our employees really be productive, which is that they're happy, right? That they're engaged. And that also, by the way, isn't just warm fuzzies. That actually does result in a bottom line. Can you, a better, a stronger bottom line. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So financial incentives, I'm teaching a course right now on motivation and incentives at HBS. Performance incentives do increase effort. 
right? But they also have negative externalities that we need to be aware of that research is just starting to uncover. So for example, I have a working paper with a couple of my colleagues showing that being paid, having financial incentives, so being paid for performance can actually make people more strategically socialized. So they'll strategically invest more in social interactions with colleagues, even if it comes at the expense of critical social interactions with friends and family, because they see those in colleagues as being more instrumental for their success. This is particularly true when you have more subjective elements of performance measurement. So when there's some subjective element to the performance measurement system, like a 360 review that uh, is partially determining the pay. And this these results are non-trivial. So in a nationally representative sample of about 60,000 employees, people who are paid under performance incentives, irregardless of their industry, background, career, trajectory, where they were in their jobs, spent 2 to 3% less time each and every day. So engaged in time with friends and family. And so that doesn't seem like much on a daily basis, but again, aggregated across a week, a month, a year, we can see that this really starts to erode the quantity and potentially the quality of our social relationships. And already most people in the U.S. report spending less than one hour of quality time each day with their friends and family where they're truly enjoying each other's company. So purely relying on financial incentives without also recognizing that employees have other needs and goals outside of financial profit may actually come at a cost to employees' happiness and their social relationships. So there's been some studies actually within the healthcare profession showing that time banking systems rewarding employees, professors, and physicians for activities that they wouldn't normally be compensated for. These are mentoring activities, guest lecturing in someone's class with time credits that then can go toward time-saving services like groceries or meal delivery, childcare, can have a really powerful effect for reducing burnout among physicians, increasing job satisfaction, and reducing turnover. So this was a pilot project run out of Stanford. And I think more organizations need to of course, still recognize that employees will want and the market might demand financial compensation or performance incentives because that's a normal part of our professions and and what employees expect, but to also be thinking about how we can reward employees in a more holistic way that takes care of other needs and goals, such as alleviating their time stress. Absolutely. I was reading some research out of UC Berkeley and the professor's name is escaping me, but that, that was the the total thrust of the, it's such a, there's all these unintended consequences, I guess what I'm trying to say. And that you, you come into an organization, you think you're going to drive results. You're going to throw money at some problem and it does boost effort for a while. And then employees, particularly we survey ours anonymously routinely about whether or not at this point in their career, would they recommend a friend or family come work here? What has been the most rewarding incentive and it's always time off it's always so we we pay if you're a member listening we we encourage our clients to to offer 10 percent of their pay every week to go learn something new just to get out of the office get out of the routine and it, it's from the bottom to the top i mean doctors love it just as much as the people who are entry level and running sterilization it's unbelievable so i, I really encourage everyone to go back and read that section of Ashley's book on how to truly reward your employees. Um, I'm curious, I know we're getting close to the end of our time together. 
kind of talk about where, where you're headed next. I love all the research you're doing. It's extremely fascinating to me. And I just want to thank you for doing it. It's not only helping business owners and leaders, but society, I think, at large. So maybe talk about where people can find more about you and what's coming up next. Yeah, so I've been doing a lot of research as a time and happiness researcher about this forced experiment we're in where more of our workforce than ever is working remotely or at least partially working remotely. So I've been uh, really trying to understand how we can recreate the workday to make a better new normal going forward. And some of the key takeaways, if you do find yourself working from home more often or to create breaks, boundaries, and transitions for yourself, we see that this oper- this moment is, although has an opportunity for us having more control of our time, has also demonstrated or is a perfect example of Parkinson's law where work has expanded to fill the time we've given it. We Many of us may not be as commuting or maybe uh, for listeners here, partners may not be commuting as much to the office, but chances are they're working longer. So they're working to fill the time that they used to be spent commuting. So it's really important more than ever to create mental separation between work and home, even while simultaneously working and living in the same physical space. We've been doing a lot of research on remote work during this last year, just trying to understand what we can learn about fundamentally about time and happiness from this forced experiment and how to make workplaces that are going to go remote more sustainable going forward since it's been such a stressful and unpleasant experience for so many remote workers worldwide given additional childcare demands um, and so on. Um, in terms of where you can find out more about me, my I have a personal website, awhillans.com, has all my latest articles, not behind a paywall. So you can find out more about what I'm working on there or on my faculty website. Thank you. We will include the website in the show notes. And um, I just can't thank you enough for writing the book. It's absolutely brilliant. And uh, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. You've been listening to another episode of The Burleson Box, where we bring you and your team leaders into the conversation with today's best authors and business leaders. If you enjoyed today's program, please be sure to share us with a friend or colleague. You can visit theburlesonbox.com and sign up to receive my monthly reading list and study guides for each of the books and authors we interview. Or call us at 1-800-891-7520, and we can discuss how a Burleson Box membership, monthly coaching, and our annual leadership conference can work for you and your team leaders. Be sure to listen each month for new resources that'll help you and your employees serve your patients with excellence. And until next time, remember the words of Alberto Mangel, who said, Maybe this is why we read, and why in moments of darkness we return to books, to find words for what we already know. Go, make it a great month, and I'll see you right here next time on The Burleson Box. Dr. Burleson here. You've heard that real estate should be a part of every investor's portfolio, but maybe you're unsure where to start. My good friend and colleague, Dr. David Phelps, leads an investor community that has ditched the traditional Wall Street model for the stability of real estate assets. They are called Freedom Founders, and they do real estate really, really well. David's Freedom Blueprint reveals exactly how much you need to retire. Some of my top clients have done the program. They speak highly of David and his Freedom Blueprint. With the certainty of their passive real estate investments, Freedom Founders members are free to spend more time with family or even leave the practice altogether. David has put together some special resources for my listeners. To access, just text Dustin to 972-203-6960. 
or go to freedomfounders.com forward slash Burleson. <laughs>